Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Experiencing God with Tim Hart. Uh, We're continuing on in this series on the church. And in the last episode, we were looking at this final aspect of the church, and that is the authority of the church. And so I was asking this question, uh, does the church have authority? And if so, what is the nature of that authority and how is it expressed? And so if you remember in the last episode, if you listen to it, I'll uh, just do a quick recap. But um, I gave this sort of very basic, simple definition of the word authority. What does that mean to have authority? Well, one simple definition of it is that authority is the right to do something, to make a certain decision or to carry out a certain action. It's the right or the authorization to do that and gave the example of police officers uh, who, you know, in our in our society, police officers have a delegated authority from the government uh, to carry out certain aspects of their role to enforce laws and to keep uh, peace and safety in, within society and keep the road safe, those kind of things. And so they have a delegated authority that they use to carry out their role. And there's um, many other positions in society, roles in society that, that would use authority in a similar way. Uh, but authority is essentially that. It's, it's, a, it's the right to do something, the authorization to do something uh, justly, to do it rightly, uh, to see you know a certain outcome or to see certain thing affected or a decision made or, or whatever the case. And so just kind of helpful to have that working definition of authority. And in the last episode, we kind of discussed two ways in which the church has authority given by Jesus. We looked at Matthew 16, where Jesus tells Peter that I've given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And uh, uh, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose on heaven. And talks about the establishing of his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so one of the ways in which believers are given authority or the church at large is in the work of advancing the kingdom of heaven and proclaiming the gospel. In the Great Commission, uh, Jesus uh, when he gives the great commission to the 11 disciples and to the church at large, he he first says, behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so when Jesus gives this instruction to us to go and advance the kingdom of God and proclaim the gospel, he connects it to the fact that he has all authority. And I think we should understand there that Jesus is saying, I'm giving you this directive, this command, and therefore you are going and doing this with my delegated authority. We have authority given by God to proclaim the uh, the gospel and to advance the kingdom of heaven and to engage in activities that would serve that purpose. Uh, the other way was um, this idea of having authority. The church has authority over Satan and demons and the, the realm of darkness. Uh, the Bible uses that phrase. It calls it the domain of darkness in, in Colossians. Uh, but we have authority. Uh, and it says in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, we have an authority to resist Satan or to work against the purposes of Satan and to see the purposes of God prevail. And uh, we see this example of this in Luke chapter 10. You have the 72 disciples have just been out proclaiming the gospel. They've been praying for the sick and and sharing the gospel in different uh, towns. And when they come back, they report that to Jesus, they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, uh, basically, he says, behold, I saw Satan fall you know, like lightning from heaven. So Jesus was present and witnessed the uh, the, con- the great condescension, the descension of Satan where he's cast out of heaven. And he says, uh, uh, the, I've, he says, behold, I've given you authority to tread 
serpents and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. And then he says, nothing will by any means harm you. So in other words, we have an authority that is delegated by Jesus to overcome Satan, the demonic, their works, their effects, and to uh, see the purposes of God prevail. And so that's another way in which the church has authority. So those were the two that we kind of spent some time on in the last episode. Well, in this episode, I want to look at another aspect of this authority of the church. And so... Um, and that is, we want to look at the authority as it pertains to individual believers. And uh, one pastor, a friend that I have, John Thompson, and I mentioned him before, uh, but he he was really helpful on this. And he, I heard him teach once, and he uh, described these three ways in which believers, uh, followers of Jesus, have authority. And they are this: we have number one, common authority; number two, gift-based authority. And number three, positional authority. So when we're talking about common authority, I think that's similar to to in the last episode, you know, some of these broader, uh, the the broader authority that's given to the church, you know, into doing the work of advancing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and advancing the kingdom or over Satan and the demonic, you know, every Christian has a measure of authority in these areas to to engage in this work and to uh, resist the devil and he'll flee. That's common to every believer. So there's so when I say common authority, we're talking about the authority which is delegated by Jesus to his whole church that all believers, regardless of their age, their ethnicity, their geographical location, their experience, their seminary training, their position within a church, regardless of any of these sayings, we all have this common shared authority which is delegated to us by Jesus. And so, you know, any one of us, when we get involved in doing the work of advancing the kingdom of heaven and proclaiming the gospel, there is a sense where heaven is authorizing us and backing us up and actually, I think, helping us in that. And I think there's uh, times when, you know, there's doors opening and opportunities that are happening because heaven is working alongside of us. And we don't even aware that God is creating opportunities and opening these opportunities because we're doing this with authority. And so uh, that's true of every believer. It's this common authority. Well, the next area there is uh, gift-based authority. So what do we mean by gift-based authority? Well, here's the thing, you know, can I show you a passage in scripture that uses the phrase gift-based authority? No, that you can't find that phrase in the New Testament. It's not really presented that way. But it's the, it's the principle is this, is that um, God distributes different spiritual gifts and ministries to the body of Christ. You know, we know that from reading First. Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, it says that we all have gifts that differ, differ. let us use them in proportion to the measure of faith, you know, of prophecy, let us use it in, in proportion to our faith, etc. Uh, and so we have gifts, we have in these um, in manifestation of the spirit, which is given to us, working through us for the common good is sort of a working definition of a spiritual gift. And I think that there's an implied sense that we have authority in the area where we're gifted. You know, and the the logic here is that if God gives you a gift in a certain area of ministry, that he's that with that gifting is an inherent permission or an authorization to engage in that ministry in a unique way that maybe somebody without that gift wouldn't have. So, you know, a good example of this uh, is, let's say, gifts of healings. Now, I'm by the way, I'm going to just uh, make the assumption that everybody here listening, uh, that making the assumption of that all of the gifts are in existence today, uh, you know, minus 
just some of the ones relating to the original apostles who wrote scripture and so on. But I'm, I'm, but majority of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 and so on, I'm making the assumption that those things still exist today. I, I don't hold the position of a cessationist which says that certain gifts have ceased and you know some have persisted. Uh, I, I believe that gifts of healings and working of miracles, um, that all those things are still in existence today and still at work in the church today. And I've discussed that on previous episodes. Um, but I'm making that assumption. Let's say that there is somebody who is given gifts of healings. That's what it's uh, called in 1 Corinthians 12. Well, there's an inherent, inherent sense or permission that they have to pray for healing. They have an authority in that area of ministry that would be unique perhaps to those who don't have gifts of healings or working of miracles, the same thing. And, and this is true of any area of gifting. I mean, take teaching, for example, that's described as a gift. Uh, we have gifts that differ, Romans 12. If teaching, let us teach. It's, it's stated in Romans 12 as a gift. If you have a gift of teaching, then there's an authority that you have to teach. In fact, I'd even argue a responsibility to teach. In James 3.1, this is a helpful passage here. It says, not all of you should presume to be teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so we're actually exhorted to not presume to be teachers, you know, unless it's clearly a recognized and affirmed area of gifting that's affirmed in community and so on. It's a clearly recognized area of ministry and gifting. And then I think we have an authority to teach. We have a designated role from God to teach in the, and, and to have that type of contribution to the body of Christ, to teach what accords with sound doctrine and to teach the word of God and to give explanation and understanding to the word of God, to help believers, to apply that to their lives and walk more closely with the Lord. And so those who have gifts of teaching have an authority to teach that those without those gifts don't have. Because the Bible says, like I said, don't don't presume to be a teacher, uh, you know, because we who teach are going to be judged more strictly. So in, you're exhorted actually not to take the role of teaching if that's not an area where you're gifted. Now, just as a point of clarification, in Hebrews 5, there is that one statement where it says, you know, by now we should all, or Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews, um, I kind of think it's a sermon of Paul's that maybe somebody wrote down. Uh, but anyway, nonetheless, <laughs> that's not the purpose of this episode, but um, the the a uh, writer in Hebrews says to them in chapter five, he says, by now you ought to all be teachers. He says, but instead I still need to give you milk and solid food is for the mature who by reason of use have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. And so there, the, one of the marks or characteristics of a mature believer is actually an ability to teach or being able to teach. So yeah, I would think that means a competency in doctrine and in the, in the word of God. That's maybe characteristic of all of us who are mature in our faith, but that doesn't necessarily mean a gift of teaching and a responsibility to take a role of teaching within the body of Christ. I think there's an authority that is connected to the gift of teaching. And so when we're talking about gift-based authority, like I said, that's not a phrase you can find in the New Testament, but I think the concept is is uh, a fairly uh, logical concept that if God gives an empowering and a gifting to do a certain area of ministry, that there is with it a permission and an authorization to do that ministry. There's a right to do that ministry that might just be a little bit more than uh, what somebody somebody else who doesn't have that gift. And so I think that's a, a really good way for believers to understand authority is gift-based authority. So that's the brings us to the third type of authority, and this is uh, what uh, my friend John refers to as positional authority. I think it's a really good term. And this is 
authority that is connected to an official position within the church or, or an office within the church, you know? So this would be where, you know, pastors and elders, they have an authority that is inherent within their role as pastors or elders or deacons within the church. And so um, just to back up a little bit, let's discuss here, what what are some of the official roles or positions that are mentioned in the New Testament? Well, I think there are three, you know, offices is what we could call them, these official roles uh, that are clearly recognizable, that have a clear set of criteria that are publicly recognized and affirmed. Uh, there's really three in the New Testament, and, and there's really only two that apply to you and I here today. So the first of these roles is apostle. And when I say apostle, I'm referring to the original apostles whom Jesus designated. And Luke 6 talks about how Jesus was up on a mountain. He prayed all night and he came down in the morning. He brought his disciples to himself and from them, he chose and he delegated 12, designating them as apostles. And he gave them authority. And another account of that's uh, recorded in uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, Luke chapter 6, I think it's Mark. Chapter 3 is another place uh, where he designates these 12 as apostles. He gives them a unique authority. He sends them out to preach. That's one aspect of uh, what they do. Uh, they become the founders of the church. And But there's some other things that, that are really clearly recognizable criteria for apostles in the Bible, for these original apostles. And uh, by the way, it's the 12, you know, later on, uh, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, well, Judas Iscariot falls away. And in Acts chapter 1, the churches together, they designate a man, Matthias, to fill the role of Judas Iscariot, to become the 12th apostle, to replace Judas Iscariot. And later on, actually, in in chapter 9 of Acts, we have the apostle Paul, Saul at the time. uh, He encounters Jesus. He sees Jesus with his eyes, and uh, and Jesus calls him and designates him. And so later on, Paul writes at the beginning of a lot of his letters, he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, not by the will of men or by men, but by Jesus Christ. You know, so Paul was actually chosen and delegated to the role of apostle by Jesus. And so he came after the 12. I think that uh, James, the Lord's brother, uh, is also an apostle. He's mentioned as such in uh, Galatians 1, I think it's verse 19 around there. Uh, and then he's he also wrote the epistle of James. He's one of the, the main elders in Jerusalem. And uh, so here, here's the characteristics. So this is why the original apostles are uh, an off, that you can look at their role as an office, an official role. And that is because there's certain criteria that made them apostles. Number one, they were chosen and delegated by Jesus. They were given authority, a unique authority for to perform miracles and do healings and things like that. They were sent out to preach. Um, they have an authority to write and approve scripture. We get a hint of that in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, when Paul says to the Corinthians that what I am writing to you is the commands of the Lord. You know, there's this appeal that, you know, if any of you is spiritual or spiritually gifted, let them acknowledge what the things that I write to you are the commands of God, that there's this authority to write, to approve, to be inspired, to pen the very words of God as scripture, which is not something that is true anymore. That ended with the, the last of the apostles. And so um, they bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. When Paul defends his apostleship, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? And uh, and so anyway, we get this sense of there's a very clear set, a set of criteria 
that in terms of how these apostles are recognized, they're publicly recognized, they were appointed by Jesus himself. And so there's there's no ambiguity as to who were um, who those apostles were, capital A apostles. Now the question is, is there such thing as apostles today? I mean, some groups will teach that. And I think that, I've, and I've taught on this before, just to mention it briefly, but I think you can recognize something uh, some t- a, a gift uh, of apostleship, perhaps you could call it a gift of apostleship. There's something that God does in certain ministries that does bear some resemblance to the ministry of the apostles. I mean, you can look at some missionaries like Roland and Heidi Baker in Mozambique. They've you know planted ten to fifteen thousand churches. Have seen over a million people come to faith in Jesus. I mean, that looks a lot like some of the ministry of the apostles planting churches and uh, seeing the kingdom of heaven advance over a large area and giving sort of a regional oversight and pioneering new works of ministry. And I think there are ministries today that have some resemblance. And can we maybe call those a gift of apostleship? I think you can do that. Uh, But I don't think that they are the same as the original 12 apostles because they didn't witness Jesus. They didn't see his resurrection. Uh, They don't have authority to write and approve scripture. And Revelation talks about the names of the apostles are on the the foundations of the new city of Jerusalem, and they will be given authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's not not true of anybody who who would uh, you know have something like an apostolic ministry today, and so I think you know can there be capital A apostles that were the, the original apostles of the Bible, and then can there be something like a small A apostle or something that's similar today? Maybe missionaries. Uh, I think you can recognize that today, and I've I've taught on that before, but just to mention that uh, one of the three offices in the New Testament is the office of apostle, which no longer exists today. It ended with uh, the apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus, he appeared then last of all to me as one untimely born. And it seems that Paul is putting a period at the end of the sentence saying, I'm going to be the last one to be included in this uh, in this group of apostles, I think is how we can understand that. So the one of those uh, three offices, the office of apostle, no longer uh, present today. Now you have two others, and that is the office of elder and the office of deacon. Again, just to, re- just to reiterate, the, the term office, here is because it is official. It comes from the word official. It means there is very specific designated criteria. Uh, there's qualifications that are clearly delineated in scripture when they're instituted into those roles. It's done publicly. It's done with the affirmation of other leaders. It often involves the laying on of hands. Uh, there's really no ambiguity. No one's kind of scratching their head wondering, oh, is so-and-so an elder or is he a deacon or is he none of those? It isn't really up to us to sort of ambiguously decide. It's very clearly and publicly recognized when people are instituted into these roles of elder or or of deacon. Uh, they have to meet certain criteria. There's a process that happens of discerning these people and, and if God is appointing them to those roles. And so um, now in some charismatic groups, they will refer to other things as Offices, so you know they'll they'll read uh, the roles mentioned in Ephesians chapter four, where it says Jesus gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for works of ministry. Well, in some charismatic settings, they will you know refer to those roles as offices. You have the office of a prophet or the office of an evangelist. Well, I, I kind of understand what they're doing there. They're, they're they're recognizing these as valid roles of leadership within the church. It's kind of they're there to equip the saints. However, I don't think we can use the term 
office. And the reason is there's really no, like I said, official set of criteria. There's no list that tells you the qualifications for the office of a prophet or of an evangelist. Um, Those terms in the New Testament seem to be functional nouns. So when it uses the term prophet, it, it seems to describe somebody who has a gift of prophecy or who prophesies over people. So when you have uh, Judas and Silas who are known prophets in Acts 15, 32, it says they they went, they're coming out, of, they're sent by the council in Jerusalem earlier in the chapter uh, with a letter that was put together to give to the Gentiles, uh, just, you know, to kind of give some instructions to the Gentiles about inclusion within the Jewish community. And so um, Judas and Silas go and it says they say a lot of things with many words. They strengthen and they encourage the believers. It just sounds like they shared some uh, prophetic words with people to encourage them, to strengthen them, to comfort them. Uh, similar type of thing in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul's describing in a, any given church service, we'll let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh carefully what is said. It's kind of, he's presuming that in any given church gathering, there could be a few people who may have prophetic words to give, and we should let them do that, and we should let weigh, weigh and test what is said. And so it seems that there's um, the term prophet is, is used to describe people who function in those gifts, uh, but I don't think there's any list of criteria that we can appeal to, to to describe what an office of a prophet is versus just a standard gift of prophecy or same with evangelists or same with some of the other roles. And so anyway, in summary, I think the three offices that we can clearly recognize in the New Testament and they and their their roles that are very present in the narrative of the book of Acts and so on is the is the role of elder and deacon and uh, like I mentioned, the original 12 apostles. Well, I want to look at these two roles of elder and deacon. And by the way, I'm just going to do a brief overview on the roles here. This isn't meant to be an in-depth study looking at every single verse on on it. There's plenty of great resources to go. If, you, if this is something that is new to you, you haven't kind of done a deep dive into this sort of subject, it's really good to know and understanding the role of elders and the role of deacons within churches because they are essentially those who make up the leadership of churches. And so I just want to talk a little bit about those. And then I want to just sort of discuss how how this, you know, what, what this means in the context of our conversation on authority. What but what authority do they have by, by virtue of their position, uh, right? Because we we're talking about positional authority. And so uh, let's, let's start off with the uh, role of elders. So there's several places that mention this role of elders. And uh, the first place I want to look at, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to flip open to Acts chapter 14, towards the end of the chapter. So this is Saul and Barnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they, they were together They uh, with a group of other guys. They were praying and fasting, and the Lord said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work of ministry. They were sent out into what is referred to commonly as the first missionary journey. So they go uh, into various places, and they, they're proclaiming the gospel. They're doing sign, there's signs and wonders taking place to confirm the message of the gospel and to attest to who Jesus is. And, um, and, so, and then they're planting and establishing churches. So there's a interesting verse here. I'm going to look down to um, uh, verse uh, 21 of Acts 14. Uh, so it talks about how, um, uh, yeah, the, the disciples had now gathered around uh, 
Paul, uh, he rose up this after having been stoned. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. By the way, I think that Paul probably is bearing some of the marks of his uh, persecution he experienced. That's probably why that is a big part of their message here is they're strengthening the believers. You know, it might be that some of these believers are shocked to see Paul in the state that he's in. And he's saying, no, actually through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Very interesting verse. Well, look in verse 23. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas with prayer and with fasting, so they're they're putting... You know, Jesus did a similar thing. As I mentioned, Luke 6, he goes up into the mountains. He's praying all night regarding those whom he's going to appoint in leadership. So I think they're following the model and example of Jesus. But with prayer and with fasting, they commit them to the Lord in whom they believe. So they appoint elders. And do you notice how it says elders, plural, right? It's not a single elder in each church. It's elders, plural. And did you also notice that it's in every church? You know, it's not just something that there wasn't one elder in the town and there's a number of churches around. It seems that there is a plurality of elders in every church. Well, why is that important? Well, here's why that's important. In our modern day church context, and and I don't know where, where you're listening from. I have uh, several listeners that tune in from kind of actually all d- different continents uh, from all over the world. Uh, but here in North America the, and, and, and in other places in the world, in Europe and so on, uh, a lot of churches are structured in a way where, you know, they, they may have... Um, they may have uh, one elder present in a church and then they have a board of what they might call deacons. Uh, We'll talk about deacons in a few moments or they may have uh, a pastor and they may have something like an elder board or a presbytery that actually is somewhere else. It's a group of elders that's over that city and, you know, maybe the pastor would report to them or there's some kind of higher governing authority over the churches in the area. I mean, there's a a number of different church models of governance. Uh, Again, this is not going to get very technical. It's not my purpose to get all in depth into the various, you know, the Presbyterian Church and the Episcopalian Church and um, the Baptist Churches of America and you know all those different models. Um, that, that, by the way, I'd recommend you do look at that at some point. It's wor- worth uh, looking into, uh, reading into, into some systematic theology books and so on. Um, however, the, here, here's what's important to note. All, all I want to say is that it seems in the New Testament that when the apostles are appointing elders where others elders are appointed, it, it's they're done plurally. There's more than one elder and they're in every church. And that's important, I think, for, for two reasons. Number one, uh, some of what we're going to look into the role of of elder is you really can't do it very well if you're not present in a church community. Uh, it's very difficult to give to exercise any real oversight over a community if you have no idea what's going on there and you're doing it from far away. It's very difficult to do. So uh, one of the words, by the way, for an uh, an elder, Titus chapter one, <clears throat> is the word overseer. 
Uh, and the word overseer, episkopos in the Greek, it's where we get the word episcopalian from. And episkopos, it basically means to have oversight, to have to be to have oversight, to be watchful over a community. It, and it implies watching and knowing what's going on. Like just, in fact, the same way as you know the Christmas story and the shepherds watched over their flocks by night. It's like they they're they're probably standing up on a hill so they can first of all see everything, and they're looking in the sheep. And what they're looking for is is the predators coming in. That are going to attack the sheep. Is there any vulnerability in the fence that the sheep could wander off? Is there any robbers or thieves that are coming over the fence to trying to steal the sheep? They're being very watchful and giving oversight to that flock as part of giving care and protection to that flock. And so I, I think that's some dis- description of what that term overseer is, episkopos in the Greek, is to give oversight to the congregation. And so it's very difficult to give oversight to a flock that you can't see and you're not even present in the same city. Uh, you know, some of the things that the elders would recognize is if there's works of the enemy happening, is there a little leaven that's coming to leaven the whole lump? Paul describes that in First uh, Corinthians 5, where, you know, there's some sin that takes place in church. It can actually affect the whole church. And so the, the elders need to be aware of these things. Or is there false doctrine and false teachings uh, being spread throughout the church and, and contaminating the church? And, you know, that you, they need to be present to know if this is going on. It's very hard for them to do that from a distance. So it seems to me that elders are present in the churches and they're also plural. And here's the significance of the plurality of, of leadership. Well, first of all, a uh, plurality of leadership is something that God has had, you know, in, in the role of elders, is something that's actually consistent throughout Scripture. Like back in the time of Moses, God appointed 70 elders. And so there's other people who are appointed to roles of leadership and, you know, in governing and deciding on cases and disputes between the Jews. Uh, Moses, did, in the end, wasn't responsible to do all that on his own. God appointed 70 others. So there's a plurality of leadership, even back in the time of uh Back in the time of Moses, uh, Jesus, when he appointed the apostles, he didn't choose one apostle. He chose 12 apostles. So you even see, you know, some value from from Jesus' perspective to, to, for plurality in leadership. And here in this passage, we see that uh, Saul and Barnabas are appointing elders, plural, in every church. And so it seems that there should be more than one elder in a church. Now, there are, again, church governance models where, you know, they have the senior pastor is the elder, and then you have, you know, a deacon board, perhaps, of uh, that or, a board, or some type of leadership board that's under the pastor. But ultimately, there, in a setting where you only have one pastor and he's the only elder, well, he kind of has the ultimate authority. And that may go fine. There's some churches where they that works and it, you know, this, the churches are healthy, they're growing. However, I heard, um, actually, as I was listening to some teaching by Wayne Grudem on this topic, he described that there was a church once where... Um, there was an elder, uh, the senior pastor was elder. All of the board members actually were deacons and there came a dispute. The elder, the, the, the pastor or the elder was trying to, you know, take the church in a certain direction. And, um, and the deacons all disagreed. In fact, the deacons were all unanimous in their decision. And in the, at the end of the day, the pastor said, well, I'm the pastor. None of your votes counted. What I say goes. And so they have like, you know, you end up with a little bit of an unsafe situation where you have no accountability. You have someone who has empowered with a lot of authority, but with no accountability. Well, the, the beauty of having a plurality of elders is that their authority is when they come together in agreement. And there's also a safety and an accountability. Because here's the reality, even 
even in the Bible, it describes that even from among elders, there can be those who can arise among the ranks of elders who are not um, pure or not trustworthy. Um, there's an example of that in uh, Acts chapter 20, so a few chapters later. And this is a passage where Paul is exhorting the elders in uh Ephesus. He speaks to the Ephesian elders. Uh, he he kind of describes a lot of his time in not shrinking back from the word of God. He talks about how he's going to Jerusalem constrained, constrained by the spirit. And later on in verse 28, this is what he says to this group of, of elders. He says, "Be uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So here's another example where we get that term overseers, to keep watch over, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Uh, Again, that sort of a role of an overseer to keep watch for these kind of things. And listen to this though, verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So he's exhorting these elders. He's saying, you keep watch over it. Care for the church of God because fierce wolves will come to draw away the disciples. And then he says, even from among your own selves, even from among your own selves, uh, that will arise men speaking twisted things and drawing the disciples away after them. So there's a risk of even among elders uh, that, that that Paul describes that even it's possible from among them there could be uh, some some counterfeit individuals, you know, teaching false doctrine, leading people astray. <clears throat> and so there's there's incredible wisdom in having a plurality of elders, and and then you have an authority which is not empowering one person to have all the authority over a church, but rather it empowers a a group of elders that when they come together in unity and agreement, that that is a high level of authority for leading and governing the church, which sort of brings me to some more of the role of elders. So, you know, what else do elders do? What's kind of their role? Well, there's a few places we get some some insight into that. Uh, one of one of which we so we look here at uh, Acts 20 about caring for the church of God and exercising oversight. Um, there's another passage in First Peter chapter five. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can flip there, uh, or I'll just read it if you're driving or uh, you're not able to flip open to it. Uh, So this is Peter, and he says this, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And verse five, it says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So there's a few things we pull out of this passage. Number one, Peter is saying he, as an apostle, is actually one of the elders. So the the apostles function together as elders as well. So that's just kind of interesting. Uh, we said in Acts 15, you have the council, and it's using the phrase and the apostles and the elders together, you know, de- um, you, you know, decided on these things. And so um, 
the elders and the apostles are very closely related. Uh, so, so Peter re- identifies himself as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he gives this exhortation to them to shepherd the flock of God. Now, I've talked about this before. Uh, I did an episode on, on actually the gift of pastoring and shepherding. I think this uh, can be understood as a spiritual gift and a role of ministry within the church. And actually, this is the the verb tense of that word, pastor or shepherd. To shepherd uh, is the word poimines, and it basically means to tend to the flock, the way a shepherd would care for a flock of sheep. So it means meeting the needs. It means uh, serving to protect them, to give care, to give oversight, to give counsel. It involves teaching. It involves probably some measure of counseling and meeting needs practically. It's to generally give care to the flock of God, to shepherd them and give leadership and and to exercise oversight. And I've talked a bit about oversight, not under compulsion, so it shouldn't be something that they do under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. So it's not something that you should aspire to, to make money or anything, but to do it eagerly. And listen to this, not domineering over those in your charge. So they're exhorted not to be abusive in their leadership, not to dominate over people, but that people are in their charge. They're actually given charge over the flock of God. They're given a type of leadership authority as elders and that they're exhorted to be examples to the flock. And, uh, you know, so one of the, one of the uh, aspects of eldering and shepherding is that they are to demonstrate godly living. They're to put on display the nature and the character of Christ as an example to the believers so they can follow. Paul says several times, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So they're to set an example. So that's a little bit more on some of the role of elders. So one one final thing I want to say about the role of elders is that they have they do have a role to rule or to govern or to lead the church. And I, I want to point this out. Um, example of this is First uh, Timothy five. It's kind of easy to remember these passages on elders because you have First Peter five, now you have First Timothy five. It's kind of easy way to remember it. Uh, it says in verse seventeen, "Let the elders who rule well." be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, And so one of the roles of elder is to rule. Well, if you look at the word there, the root word for rule, it also means to lead, um, to govern, is the word... um, uh, Prohistemi. It's it's the same word that you get for like a gift of leadership when a gift of leadership is mentioned in in uh, Romans twelve, and and the word basically means to stand before and to give an example. Uh, it can it means to exercise oversight, to govern, to rule. So there's a role that elders play in governing the affairs of the church. They make decisions. Um, you know, they, they intervene in situations to ensure the health of the church. And another aspect is they labor, some of them, not all of them, some of them labor in preaching and teaching. So this is where we get, you know, our, in the churches today where we have um, senior pastors who, who are on full-time staff with the church and what they predominantly do is to teach and to preach and give leadership to the church. Well, it says that uh, we should honor them giving double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then it says, you know, there's always some dispute that arises. Should pastors be paid? You know, where in the Bible does do we get that? Well, here is actually where we see um, an example of where there are some elders who labor in preaching and teaching. And it says, 
that you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain and a laborer deserves his wages. That's a quote from actually one of the gospels. So here you have uh, Paul quoting from the gospel of Matthew uh, where, when, when Jesus says the worker is worthy of his wages. And so, in other words, it, that they do this full time as a vocation. It's actually okay. They, sh- you know, don't muzzle the ox when it treads the grain. As they're working, they should be able to uh, obtain wages to do what they're doing because they're doing it full time. But do you notice not all of the elders are going to do that. Some of them are going to rule well, but they're not necessarily going to be involved in vocational preaching or teaching regularly. And um, and so anyway, that's just a bit of more on the role of elder. They they give spiritual oversight. They they shepherd. They care for the flock. They give governance. They give leadership. They teach the Bible. Some of them do this full time vocationally and uh, and actually receive wages for it. And so um, and and the, and the apostles seem to identify themselves as elders. So that's a little bit of a description as to what elders do. Now here's the thing. Uh, in scripture, because the question is, well, to what degree do they have authority and, and what should what should our perspective be when we have elders, when we're part of a church and there's elders in that church? You know, what's their role in terms of authority and leadership in our lives? Well, there's a few places. Uh, so number one, we get here that we should let them or we should give double honor to those who rule well and especially those who preach and teach. Um, there's another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And I'm just going to flip open and read this one. It says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And so uh, we are to respect those who are in God-given positions of leadership and who labor uh, as leaders and who are actually over us. So there is a God-appointed role of elders to have uh, an authority within the church, to have leadership, to be over the members of the church. Now, in our culture, North America, we don't like that at all. We don't like the idea that there's people in authority over us and we, have, we should submit to them. Well, then you're really not going to like the next verse. Let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. There's a couple of passages in here on elders, um, or sorry, leaders. Remember, it says in chapter 13, verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God, consider their the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So there's that one aspect where we see the role of leaders and that includes elders that they create an example that we are to imitate. And then look at this, if you flip down to verse 17, I believe it is, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Wow, that is a very counter-cultural verse for us in this day and age in North America. But as Christians, we are exhorted to obey our leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. So in a sense, as members of a church, we are to submit to leaders. We are supposed to obey the leadership. And again, that, that the safety is you have plurality of elders and they come together in meetings and they agree and they discern together, you know, the things that God wants to do in the church and the direction the church should go and certain things that should be done. And we trust that those they are in those roles because they're appointed by God. We trust that when they come together in agreement and unity, that there's an authority to their decisions and that you and I as believers should actually submit to our, our leaders and those elders, those whom God has entrusted with governance of the church. We should submit to them and obey them for their keeping watch over our souls. And um, 
And so anyway, there's we as Christians uh, are actually exhorted by Scripture to submit to leaders. And so leaders, elders in the church have a positional authority that is given to them by God. They have an authority to lead the church, uh, to guide the church, to govern the church, to confront issues of uh, public sin or unrepented sin, or um, we'll, we'll discuss a, a little further in a few moments. Uh, and then they're, um, they have a role to ensure that there's uh, you know no immorality in the church, that there's you know no false teaching, but what's being the, that the churches are being corrupted through false teaching and those kinds of things. And so they, they very much have a role of oversight, of giving care to, of shepherding the church. And they have an authority to do that. That means that when they make a decision, I think that you could probably assume that when when you get these verses appear, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Uh, I think that you can assume that there's something similar in the role of leaders. When they make a decision, it's it has an authority and a, a backing of heaven. God works through and empowers the decisions and the, the agreed upon unified decision of leaders and elders. And we do get a glimpse of this. I want to cover this quickly Um uh, not spending a lot of time, but in Acts chapter 15, there's a very interesting example of this kind of eldership governing and ruling and decision-making, which it seems to involve and have the endorsement of God on it. And so what's happening here is um, there are some of these, um, this, uh, you know, Jewish believers, uh, the circumcision group, I think they're called, that, that they're teaching that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas uh, got into a debate with these guys. And and so they went up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and they bring this question. And so um, when they came to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders. They all declared, that, they started declaring all that God had done with them. And it says again, that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. And listen to this, it says the uh, apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. So they have a conflict in the church. They have a theological issue that's come up and they come together. They meet again. It's not everybody. It's the apostles and elders gathered together to consider the matter. And after there'd been much debate, Peter stands up and uh, basically addresses them in terms of how um, God has given the same gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, just as he has to the Jews. And there's no distinction. We're all saved by faith. And uh, you know, he kind of rebukes them. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's verse 10. But we will believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And uh, he quotes here from Amos. I'm going to uh, move down a little bit. He says, verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So he gives these, it seems that they come to this decision. There's these four points they're going to have the Gentiles observe, which is going to help them to integrate into the community with Jewish believers. And so if you read that a little bit later, they decide they're going to write a letter and they're going to send the letter with uh, Judas uh, and Silas. And uh, yeah, there's it, it's a verse in that where it's in verse 25. Um, uh, sorry, 
no, verse 28, listen to how they describe it in verse 28, you know, their decision. They said, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And it's those four things. So it's interesting that you have the elders and the apostles coming together to consider this conflict and this matter that's been brought before them. And they come to a right judgment and they receive wisdom from God. And it says, and it seems to indicate that it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gave an endorsement in their decision and how they move forward. And so I think that when they make decisions as leaders and as elders, that there's a sense where heaven is in agreement and affects the decisions that they make. And there's an authority for them to function as elders. So very quickly, I want to cover then what is a deacon and how is that different? That's the other office. Again, you know, when you see the qualifications for elder listed in 1 Timothy 3, well, it goes on to list a very similar set of qualifications for deacon. So it is also an official role of ministry that is recognized in the church that has specific criteria and qualifications. It is official. It's an office. And so uh, where, where did this role come from and what is this role? Well, if you flip over to Acts, Acts chapter 6, this is where the role of deacons is administered. So what's going on in Acts 6, the setting is this, there is a group of Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, and and they're in a dispute. Uh, The Hellenists raise a dispute against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distributions. And so the 12, they summon the full number of the disciples and they said, well, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. What they said, please the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. That's interesting. So there's an appointing of their role by the laying on of hands and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we have this role of these ministers. By the way, the word deacon comes from the Greek word deokonia, which is where we just translate that to mean ministry or service. So it's a very broad, generic term. Um, Paul uses that term even referring to himself as a as a servant and in, in a few places. So uh, diakonia means service, it means ministry. And so the apostles are saying, it wouldn't be right for us to be pulled away from our role of the ministry of the word and of prayer to these other sort of practical tasks of waiting tables. It seems that we should appoint others to have some oversight to have some leadership in the actual sort of outflow of ministry and service within a church community. And so they raise up these seven men and they they give them this role. They're appointed, they're laying on of hands. It's an official induction into this role. And later these are described in the epistles as deacons. And those who, and so what, what does a deacon do? As I mentioned, it basically means to serve, uh, to give service, to give ministry. And I think my, my opinion of this is uh, is I think that this is can be descriptive of a broad uh, many different roles within church. This has a pretty broad application. You know, there's some churches where they have a deacon board, which it really it's kind of like an elder board, but there's still the senior pastor who's elder, and he has a bit of a higher authority to, to squash everybody if he wants to, which I think is not a very healthy model. But some some deacon boards they, they function very healthily, like elders, and that's kind of how they. Um, they, they use those terms. However, I think that it's 
a little bit more consistent with the word is that they're people who are engaged in actual works of ministry and service in the church community. I think that can mean everything from like somebody who is a director of children's ministry, who oversees the children's ministry and appoints volunteers and just ensures that the children are being cared for and ministered to in church and not neglected. I think that falls very similar to what you read in Acts chapter 6, where there's a group of people being neglected. And so these men step in and they take on this role uh, to to serve practically and to meet a need. And so I think that that could include a children's ministry director, uh, which I think can be male or female. I think it, it would include a worship director or worship pastor who would oversee a ministry of worship and ensuring that there's you know instruments and a sound system. There's people on a sound team or uh, there's musicians who play and you know just organizing schedules. There's some administration, I think, in their role. Uh, there's some organizing in their role and they, they just serve to, to practically see ministry ministry happen. I think they're also at times involved with like, you know, overseeing some of the affairs of, you know, the, a building, like you know, taking care of the maintenance of a building. Um, I think they might even at times do something a lot like Act 6, where they might run a, a, something like a, an operation feast or something in the evenings that serves and serves uh, food or, you know, ad- administers uh, resources of the church. Maybe they have like uh, something like um Donations where they can give clothing or they give food, and I think that would all fall under the, the the oversight of that would fall under the purview of deacons. And so I think it can be youth pastors. I think would fall in this category. There could be different outreach teams, there could be uh, missions committees, and those kind of things. But they just are fulfilling practical areas of ministry, practical areas of service within a church. And I think that's pretty consistent with what we read in. Acts chapter six, where this is instituted, where how we understand the word deacon, I think that's pretty consistent with that. So I think that can be fairly official. Um, and those roles, by the way, they don't necessarily call everybody a deacon. You know, who's the? They might call it a children's ministry director, or a youth pastor, or a worship director, or a worship pastor, or um, outreach director. Like I, I think the term isn't necessarily required that it has to be called a deacon. But I think functionally, all of those types of roles. Uh, you can consider those to be deacons. And they and they really do have a God-appointed authority. So there's a positional authority that applies to deacons. And here, here's how this works practically. Let's say you're in a church. If you are going to serve as a member of a worship team, let's say you play an instrument, you play the bass, you play piano or drums, and you go on that worship team and there's a worship leader who is... Uh, giving some oversight and some leadership to the the um, the implementing of the ministry, musical ministry of worship in a church, uh, then they are going to decide perhaps on the songs and, you know, what song is going to go in what order. Well, that you can't go in there and decide, no, I don't want to play that song. I think we should do this song first. And I don't like your leadership in this. You know, that, actually, I think the Bible says that we should submit to those kinds of roles of leadership as well. And there's somebody who's leading a worship team, like go into that setting with the heart that to serve, to say, oh yeah, I'll serve. I'll do the order of songs that you want. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't make suggestions and things like that or appeal a decision. But but in a general sense, I think that our posture and our attitude is we should come in and submit to those spheres of influence and spheres of leadership that are given to certain people in the church. If you're going in to help teach in the children's ministry and they want you to do a uh, craft with the kids, get the popsicle sticks and the glue out or whatever, I mean, do the do the craft. Do, like, submit to the person who's been given some oversight, some leadership in this area and serve them, not like make it a burden for them. So I think that the um, that it's important that we recognize even the smaller spheres of leadership, authority, and influence, and to create a culture in churches 
where we really do submit to leadership. I think leadership can can very much be expressed in those smaller settings as well. And so, anyway, that's a little bit about some of the biblical roles of positional authority. We have elders, we have deacons. We had, you know, back in the early times, in the original time of Jesus, we had the original apostles who were, who were in office. And I think that these are God-appointed God instituted positions of leadership and, and ministry that come with them uh, a, a delegated authority in their role. And that, by the way, that means if you are, let's say you're nominated to a role of elder, you're immediately, just by virtue of the fact you're stepping into that role of elder, or maybe it's deacon, you're stepping into a God-given authority and a God-given appointment that is recognized by heaven that has the backing of heaven, the empowering of heaven behind it for you to serve in that role. And so I think it's helpful for us to understand these roles of positional authority and uh, um, as believers. And so anyway, there's one other final aspect to authority that we should look at, uh, but I'm going to bring this episode to its conclusion here, and we're going to do one more. I'll do a part three because there just is one more area, and uh, I, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at this, and that's on the area of church discipline. How should the church use authority, and what does authority look like when it comes to confronting issues of public and unrepentant sin, and what does restoration look like, and how does church discipline, how is that affected, and whose responsibility is it? I think that it would be really prudent to cover some of those things, but just um, to to give that the adequate time it needs, I think what I'll do is conclude this episode here, and I'll just do one final episode on that. And so, listen, I want to thank you for taking some time to listen. If you're still here at the end of this episode, thanks for bearing with me. Um, you know, one guy taught on this said, you know, it's not the most exciting thing to learn in the world, the roles of officers in the church and so on, but it's good. It's good for us to have a good biblical rooted understanding of what these roles are and how they should function. And so, uh, anyway, I think, thank you for joining me. I hope this was uh, helpful to you. I hope it was insightful. And uh, as always, there'll be more episodes to come. So stay tuned. Take care.